Adolf Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, which started World War II. This global battle lasted until 1945 with the invasion and surrender of Germany and the suicide of Hitler. More than 100 million people from over 30 countries were involved. Today, we hear from one man from Yonkers who's been meeting and interviewing local World War II veterans. Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Joining me in the studio is Bob Abbott. He'll share his experience gathering the unique and remarkable stories of combat soldiers whose numbers are, unfortunately, dwindling quickly. Thanks for coming in, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. What were your childhood memories of of World War II? My most vivid childhood memory was as a uh, three-year-old kid sitting on a floor in the kitchen playing with a toy in our apartment building in the South Bronx by the Yankee Stadium. And all of a sudden, my mother and father exploded in a kaleidoscope of emotions, hugging, kissing, laughing, crying, screaming, the war's over, the war's over, the war's over. I had no idea what the words meant, but I knew something really special had happened. And as it turned out, that was the end of World War II with the signing of the peace treaty on the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, August 6, 1945. And uh, I live in an apartment house with 48 tenants. Six were returning World War II veterans. One man, a close friend of my father, was barely wounded, and he was in a veteran's hospital in Staten Island. My dad was a New York City fireman. We didn't have a car. But on a number of occasions, we would take the number four Woodlawn Jerome train down the South Ferry, take the Staten Island Ferry in a local bus. And all I remember as a four or five-year-old kid was all these white-clad nurses pushing all these wounded sailors and soldiers and Marines in lorries and wheelchairs. And it had a profound impression on me. Uh, my dad on Friday nights would go to his local tavern man, and say he'd have beer with his friends. One of his friends there was a guy named Charles Red Shea, who growing up was a delinquent teenage kid. In fact, all the parents in Highbridge told their kids, if I see you with Red Shea, you're grounded. And he was a delinquent. He went before a judge, and the judge told him, either you join the service or you're going to reform school. So he joined the Army. Red Shea was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions in Italy during 1944. So I was surrounded by uh, by World War II veterans. One man, Mr. Unger, he'd go to VA every day. He lost both his legs. Uh, he had muscles in his arms like my thighs, and somehow he adjusted his car in such a way that he would come home, park the car, somehow get his his wheelchair from the back seat into the passenger seat, push it, open the door, and he would get out. And if I was nearby and I would help him, I'd help him put him in the elevator, Go up to the sixth floor. So to me, as a nine, ten-year-old kid, there was nothing more honorable or desirable than to die fighting for my country, killing communists, as crazy as that may sound today. Uh, I, at the age of 17, uh, was accepted to U.S. Naval Academy. I was there for three and a half years. So I was surrounded by these fellas. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking with veteran Fordham University alum, and Yonkers resident Bob Abbott. He's sharing his experience gathering the unique and remarkable stories of combat soldiers who served in World War II. And years later, Manhattan College, which I could almost walk to from my home, had a weekend MBA program. And I signed up for it, and I went down. And I'd go down during the week in the morning, and I'd jog around their indoor track, which at that point was the Dratty Gymnasium. But when I was in high school, it was homecoming for the World War II veterans. So as I'm 
going around jogging from time to time. I see all these banners hanging from the rafters of members of the Manhattan College Hall of Fame, Sports Hall of Fame. And I recognize most of the names, but there was one name specifically that wasn't there that I thought should be. And I, I just sort of made a mental note. And a few years later, after I graduated, I got an alumni thing from Manhattan looking for volunteers for the Manhattan College Hall of, Hall, Sports Hall of Fame Committee. So I called the chairman. I said, look, I'd be interested, but I didn't get my undergraduate. I cannot afford them, so I don't think I'd qualify. And he said, no, no, any degree would qualify. I said, in that case, count me in. And I went down to the Manhattan College Library and got four years of the Manhattan College newspaper, the Quadrangle. For the four years, this man, Tyrone Pinnell, was at Manhattan College. He was phenomenal. He was in track and field. He was phenomenal. I was good. I competed with him from time to time at track meets. That's a funny way to use the word, compete. But for whatever reason, he was not in the Hall of Fame. So I proposed him. I put together a 12-page proposal, a very detailed proposal, for the Hall of Fame. And I went to the first meeting, and a bunch of people I knew, nobody, I'm in the back of the room, and some big burly guy gets up and he says, hey, where's this Abadie guy? Who's this Abadie guy? And I kind of raised my hand. I said, back here, Bob Abbott. He said, what's your problem? I said, what do you mean? He said, you're proposing a guy for the Hall of Fame. He's already in. Do your homework. And I looked at him, and I said, wait a minute. I said, who are you? And he, he gave me his name. And I recognized his name from the research. I said, you're the you were his teammate. You were the shot putter. You were the weight man. Yeah, yeah. Well, I said, well, wait a second. If Tyrone Pinnell was in the Hall of Fame, you'd have gone to his induction ceremony, wouldn't you? Absolutely. I said, well, did you go? I don't know. It was a long time ago. For whatever reason, I had printed out a listing of all the members of the Hall of Fame. And now we're, you know, we're not whispering. Our voices are a little bit raised. And I said to him, I said, Pinnell starts with a P. I said, He's not here. He said, oh, geez, I, I just assumed he was in. I said, well, that's what happened when you assumed. Why were you so adamant that he should be in the... Because I related to him. I had a... It's a, <laughs> a very soft point. I related to the guy because he was dead. And no one accepted the fact that he had a life and no one remembered him. And I had two daughters who were basically the same age as his daughters. And it really hit me. And I just felt that uh, if I can do something to correct it, I, you know, I, I got to do it. So um, they took the vote, and they put Tyrone Pinnell into the second round, along with his roommate and his teammate. And about two months later was the second round. So they were saying, anybody who wants additional information to submit, you can submit it. And all of a sudden, people are coming in with multi-page updates. And you know, I kinda, it was my turn. I said, well... I guess imitations are sincerest form of flattery, but I gave you everything I had the first time, except for one thing. And there was an article written by a sports columnist in Brooklyn, and he basically said when he heard Tyrone Pinnell was killed in Vietnam, he felt he lost a member of the family. Because of all the athletes he ever interviewed, Tyrone Pinnell was not only the finest athlete, but the finest young man. He was a tutor. He was a mentor. He was a volunteer. And he really felt that day he lost a member of the family. So I said to the assembled group, I said, unfortunately, Tyrone Pinnell is not here to ask you for your vote or to thank you for your vote. But I am here, and I thank you for both. And they took the vote, and they put Tyrone Pinnell in the Hall of Fame, along with his roommate. So first time ever in Manhattan College, two guys, teammates, same year, Hall of Fame. And, Bob, this is or that is just one of uh, many examples of how you help shine a spotlight on people you felt needed to be remembered, needed recognition. 
is that how you decided to, or is that why you decided to begin uh, interviewing that was, soldiers? That was the catalyst, because I was invited to the induction ceremony with my wife, and that was in November of 1998, at Manhattan College in the, in the chapel. And there was the induction memorial mass for Tyrone Pinnell. And, and the other in, in, inductees of the Hall of Fame. And it came time for communion. I'm in the back room. I know no one. I'm with my wife. And all of a sudden, I see a young African-American girl get up wearing a Marine Corps fatigue jacket. And I looked, and I thought to myself, my God, I, I, I think that must be his daughter. And I, I said to my wife, because Tyrone Pinnell graduated Manhattan College in 1964 commission in the United States Marine Corps. His daughter was born Memorial Day week, 1965. He was killed in Vietnam, Vietnam, Thanksgiving week, 1965. He got to hold her and see her one time. And I said to my wife, I think that's his daughter. And she went to communion. She turned around. She comes back down. Beautiful young lady. It had to be. So when mass is over, everybody's falling out. We're in the back. The last one's to leave. And as I'm going down the stairs, I hear a female voice Bob Abbott, where's Bob Abbott? And I kind of raised my hand, and this young girl, this girl came over and gave me a bear hug. She said, you're my guardian angel. And I said, oh, well, I said, what do you mean? She said, I learned more about my father reading your nomination than I've known my whole life. And uh, I looked at her, and I said, you have to understand something. And I said, for a, a young black widower in the 1960s to raise a daughter. Single-handedly was not an easy thing to do. And unfortunately, you just can't come home at night, open up the emotions, and tie him down to go to work the next day. And she said, no, I, I understand that. She said, but you, you've got to come sit at our table tonight. You're a member of my family. I said, be honest to So we went to, the, to dinner, and halfway through, she looked at me, and she said, you know, there's a book about Vietnam, and my father's in the book. And I said, wow. I said, I, I'm a military buff. I said, what book is that? She says, Dear America, let us home from Vietnam. And it, it hit me like a brick. I said, my God, I, I, I've had that book in my room for several years. I, I never read it, but I sort of browsed through it. And she smiled. And she said, that explains it. I said, explains what? what? That explains why you did what you did. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, my dad was talking to you. You didn't hear him, but you got the message. So I went home that night and I got the book. And there's about 300 letters in the book. I'm going to paraphrase it. The the author, a guy named Dave Edelman, says probably the most poignant letter in this book is from a young second lieutenant, Tyrone Pinnell, to his infant daughter. And it basically says, Dear Tracy, like most men, I always wanted a son. And when I found out I had a daughter, I was somewhat disappointed. Until I saw you and held you and kissed you. And then I realized I'm the luckiest man in the world because sons become men. Daughters become women, but stay daughters for the rest of their life. I'm going to be gone for a while. Make sure Mommy teaches you how to say, Hello, Daddy. I missed you, Daddy. I love you, Daddy. And, of course, he never came home. But it was seeing her reaction to learning about her father that made me realize, because I'm a military buff, I say things that, wow, because this was 1998. In 1995, the Westchester Journal News had a special edition pull-out section of World War II veterans from the area. They're older pictures now, and they're younger pictures in uniform. And I thought to myself, i got to thank these guys, because they literally, figuratively, literally saved the world. And I basically called each and every man, and I thanked them on the phone. And with one exception, 
every single man said, there's nothing to thank me for. I didn't do anything special. I just did my duty. The only guys you want to thank, you can't thank because I didn't come home to run that little white crosses. And I would say, sir, I respectfully disagree. I understand what you're saying. But let me use an analogy. Would you consider the ultimate hero a Medal of Honor awardee? Absolutely. I said, well, I would too. I said, approximately 435 Medal of Honors were awarded in World War II. If those men had not been born or if those men would not have served, we still wouldn't have been victorious. We had been victorious for the non-Medal of Honor men. So I respectfully disagree, but without you and your associates and your comrades, we would not have the life we have. And I want to thank you in person, not on the phone. Well, you, you just thank me. On, it's not, not, it's a, do me a favor. It's a favor for me. I would like to thank you in person. All right, okay. I'd go by with a little out of shake case, and invariably, as soon as I ring the bell, a man would come out, Bob Abbott, I don't know what your problem is, but you need a hobby because, you know, you thanked me, and I told you I had nothing else to say, and so I don't know why you're here, but okay. In that case, sir, can I ask you one question? Yeah, what is it? What's your memory of December 7th? And in every single case, every case, the man was transposed, transfixed, back to where he was. I, I was I was playing, I was on, I was, I was, come on in. After about four or five minutes, I say, sir, what you're telling me is living history. Unfortunately, it's not being taught. I don't have a great memory. I don't take shorthand. But in my bag here is a tape recorder. Would you mind if I record what you tell me? No, no, go right ahead. And invariably, an hour, 90 minutes later, I would leave with the man's story. I was originally surprised when I would ask these people if they ever share this with their loved ones, their families, especially their sons, and invariably the answer, oh, no, no, no. But now, I mean, I began began to realize why. Invariably, the first question, and all the men I interview were combat veterans. I respect any man in uniform, but I specifically wanted combat veterans. The first question invariably that is, what did you do during the war? And if you're in combat, and what you did and or saw, you tell a loved one, Almost guarantees the second question is, my God, Dad, how could you do that or how could you watch that? Because civilians have no concept that war is 24-7, 365. There's no let up at any time. But once you've told them that, you can't say, well, forget what I tell you. You know, once you ring the bell, you can't unring it. But because I was in the military, I understood their terminology. I was a military buff. They didn't have to explain every third word. And in a way, for these men and I don't mean this irreverently, it was almost like they were going to confession because here's a stranger, they can let it all out, and they don't have to deal with me ever again. Not and they understand. You You understood their language. You I understood. understood their voice. I understood, yes. Now, Bob, unfortunately, we can't play any of your interviews because we don't have compatible equipment. We tried that once. It didn't work, unfortunately. But what type of equipment did you start using, and what type of equipment do you use now? I started with just old 45-minute uh, uh, tape cassettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I have a thing which <laughs> they don't make anymore. It's called the Flip. It's about the size of a can of uh, a pack of cigarettes, and it's a 60-minute uh, capacity. And the men I interview now, with they're okay, I sit down and I just film the interview. About how many interviews do you think you've done? I've done approximately 200. 
This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking with veteran, Fordham University alum, and Yonkers resident Bob Abbott. He's sharing his experience gathering the unique and remarkable stories of combat soldiers who served in World War II. Can you tell me about the interview you did? Well, it was sort of an impromptu interview. There was a man, you were in a store? Oh, yes. Well, that's happened. Actually, I I was in a local bakery in Yonkers. It was a couple of years after 9-11. It was a Saturday. It was busy. I'm in the middle of the line. This older man came in with, to me, a very recognizable World War II cap. I kind of looked and smiled, and he smiled back. I got out of line. I went over to him. I said, sir, I couldn't help but admire you in that cap. I said, were you in World War II? He said, yes, I was. I was in the South Pacific. And I shook his hand. I said, I want to thank you for your service. And as he's shaking my hand, he starts to tremble. He starts to sob. And I thought, oh, my God, what? And I, I, I said, I'm so sorry. I said, I never meant to do this. The girl behind the counter stopped serving. People are looking at us. And I said, I'm on their way for you outside. So he came out a few minutes later with his little bag, and I started to apologize again. He said, no, no, you don't apologize for a darn thing. He said, well, it got me so emotional. He said, you're the first person to ever thank me for my service. And I looked at him, and I said, sir, the, the war's been over more than 50 years. What about your family, your friends, your neighbor? No, no. He said, I didn't do anything. He says, if they ask me, maybe I'll say something. He said, I'll never bring it up. So I learned that day never to thank a man for his service in front of other people. It's always one-on-one. Why do you think they don't want to talk about the experience of I war? think I, I think in this country we have a sense of entitlement. Uh, as bad as World War II was, and theoretically we were attacked on the mainland, but the mainland in our case was Hawaii, 6,000 miles from the, <laughs> the real U.S. mainland— uh, unlike the people in World War II in Japan and Europe and England with the bombing, we've never lived through anything remote to that. And we just take it for granted that freedom is something we have. And freedom is never free. And I don't think people have any idea what the sacrifice involves. Us. One of the things I tell people, because um, my grandson is a little older now, but when he was six years old, he'd come to my house, and the first thing he'd do, go to the refrigerator to find his favorite ice cream. And if chocolate chip wasn't there, I'd catch a little bit of a dressing down, because, well, you know it's coming, Bobby. Where, where is it? <laughs> now, if a World War II veteran was 18 on December 7, 1941, he was born in 1923. And when he was six years old, my grandson's age at that point, it was 1929, the Depression hit. Forget ice cream. Forget refrigerators. That six-year-old youngster learned whatever he could do to help mommy and daddy put food on the table, whether it was shining shoes, delivering newspapers, working on whatever it was. And for 12 years, from 1929 to 1941, through his pubescent, adolescent years, that youngster learned, forget about, there was no such thing as me, me, me. It was all we, we, we. Whatever he could do to help his family, his friends, his relatives, his neighbors, and by extension, his country. And I tell people basic training is very important. It teaches you how to use your weapon. But nothing more prepared these men to go forward and sacrifice in the way they did than those 12 years of thinking about something other than themselves, something greater than themselves. And they are rightly called the greatest generation. There's no one that has ever come close. Bob, were there any stories that surprised you? Yeah, I I interviewed one man. There were a number of stories that surprised. I interviewed one man. He was a short guy. 
He lived up in northern Westchester County, and he lived in he lived in like a cabin, almost a man-made cabin. And he was a Marine Corps veteran from South Pacific, and uh, he told me he says I grew up basically shooting anything I ate. He said I shot deer, squirrel, whatever, and I cooked it and I ate it. And he said I he said I never missed a thing. Anything I aimed at, I I got it. And he said, as soon as uh, they attacked us on December 7th, he said, I enlisted the next day. But I knew that he had a young son. And I said, I'm a little confused, Mr. So. I don't want to give him the last name for the family. I said, but you, you, you had a young son. You didn't have to go. You would have been exempt. And he looked right through me. And he used some very, very proper language. He said, you think I'm going to wait for those so-and-sos to come over here? I'd rather kill those so-and-sos over there. And his was the most graphic interview I've had. It was a violent interview. And his tone of voice was very tough all the way through, except for one point. At the invasion of Okinawa, at the Battle of Naha, which was the bloodiest battle on the island, he's coming down a road one day, and he sees a dead lady laying on the road and a young child holding on to him. And his whole demeanor, his whole voice changed. He said, you know, I went over. He said, I picked that little kid up. I carried that little kid all day. He said, I shared with him some of my little sugar tablets. He said, I think about that kid a lot. I wonder if that little kid remembers me. Okay. I belong to a veterans group up in Montrose. And new guys come into the group, and you tell them what you did. And I told this one guy, new guy, what I do. And he said, oh, he said, I know a guy. Who would, you'd have loved to have interviewed him. He's a World War II Marine from the South Pacific. And I said, right. I said, I said who, what's his name? And it's this guy I interviewed. And he said, holy Christ. He said, you, you, my God. He says, I'm best friends with his son. I said, wow. I said, well, look, I did a transcript. Because every man got a transcript. Every man got at least a 10, 12-page transcript. Verbatim. No editing whatsoever. You went, ooh, ooh ah, it's, it's in there. So I said to him, I said, if the son would be interested in the transcript, I'd be glad to give it to him. He said, oh, no, no, the son hated the old man. He said, he said he, one of the happiest days of his life was when his father died. I said, oh, God. So I waited a couple of months, and I went to the guy again. I said, look, I don't want to be a problem here. I said, but, you know, I got the transcript. I said, uh, you think maybe he might maybe change his mind? He said, I'll tell you what. Here's his phone number. You call him. So I called son up, and I said, I don't want to get involved in any personal things here. I said, but I interviewed your father, and... I had the transcript. He said, take the transcript, do me a favor, and burn it. I said, okay. So I, about a year later, because I don't give up, I called him back. I said, I really shouldn't be making this phone call. I said, but, you know. He said, send me the damn thing. So I sent it to him. And I waited about a month or so. And I called him back again. And his whole demeanor changed. He said, oh, God. He said, I wish I, wish I had this transcript years ago. He said, you know, I thought my dad hated me. I hated him. He said, when I read in the transcript how he felt about that kid, and it wasn't even his son, I'm thinking, Jesus, if he felt that way about the kid, maybe he didn't hate me. Maybe he just couldn't show his love for me because, you know, he was in the war, and, he, you know, he kind of got screwed up. And uh, he said, I just wish I had this thing a long time ago. So that was, yeah. Wow. So are you planning to put any of these stories in a book? I, I I basically wrote the book almost 20 years ago. It's a story basically of three dozen people, actually 34. And I call it Ordinary Heroes in their own words from Pearl Harbor to uh, D-Day to Tokyo Bay. I sent it to a number of publishers. Nobody was interested. Uh, so, you know, 
and at this point in my life, it's not all that important to me whether the book is published or not. I'd like it, but you know, that's you know, I don't have any control over that. I have control over telling the stories whenever I have an opportunity, and I take that advantage. If somebody's listening or someone knows the publisher and they want to do the book, it's basically written. But, uh, you know, I'm 78 years old. I'm a grandfather, a new grandfather for the third time. And uh, telling the stories is more than enough for me. Bob, uh, where do you find the people to interview now? I mean, I'm sure there's a network of people that you you are in contact with since you've been doing this so long. But how do like what's your process? I don't really have a process at this point, uh, as you can appreciate. The youngest World War II veteran now is about 95 years old. Uh, so if I see somebody or if I see a license plate that says veteran or purple order, whatever the license plate, what, what I'm more interested in now is, is, is talking to sons and daughters of World War II veterans. I cannot tell a son and daughter of a deceased veteran much, if anything, about their father personally. But if they can tell me what his unit was, what his ship was, I can get that person a fair amount of information. It's not firsthand what their father did, but it's secondhand what their father was involved with in that unit. Um, And once in a while, I will see a World War II veteran. I was down babysitting my kids in Jersey a couple of years ago. I was in a 7-Eleven, and a little old guy came walking in, and it was obvious to me he was a World War II veteran. I, I said, I don't thank them in public anymore in groups and I smiled and he smiled I waved from him he came outside introduced myself and when I thank a man for his service one of both of us gets a bit emotional because we realize what that service entailed we realized what it meant and I thanked him for his service and he was on a ship in the South Pacific he was kamikaze twice he lost 12 or 14 of his best friends and I said to him I said you know World War II was literally a world war. It was fought in four continents, on every ocean, in the air, below the water. And from December 7th to 1941 to August 6th to 45, 44 months, less time than it takes a kid to go to college. And here we are, no political comment here, but here we are now in Afghanistan, year 17 and counting. You know, what's wrong with that picture? And he kind of smiled. And I thanked him for his service, and uh, I... Get into a red sports car. I said, "Wow, that's one heck of a car you got." And he smiled. No, no, it's not. It's not mine. It's my son's. He said, "I'm just visiting until he kicks me out." I said, "Oh, I said, where are you from?" He said, "I'm from Indiana." I said, "Oh, God bless you." And I saluted him. He goes down to the light. He makes the left. He got back to my daughter's house, and I realized a few minutes later, "You idiot! You didn't get his name, phone number. Maybe he's got email." Got in my car, went down to where he made the left, go all the way down that road. No red car, three housing developments. First one, nothing. Second, nothing. Third, there's the red car. So I got out of my car. There's a lady sitting on a veranda. I said, ma'am, do you know whose car this is? What are you, a cop? I said, no, 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 I'm not. No, no I meant it at 7-Eleven. You're sure you're not a cop? I said, no, I'm not a cop. Top of the stairs. I knock on the door. He answers the door. I have my new camera now. I don't do tape recording. I said, sir, I'm not a stalker. Let me tell you why I'm here. I interview World War II veterans. Would you be willing to share your story with me? Yeah, yeah, come on in. I said, would you mind if I videotaped? No, no, go right ahead. And after a few minutes, I say, sir, you're living here with your son. 
did you ever share your story with your son? His whole demeanor, oh, no, no. If he wanted to know, he would have asked. I'm no hero. I don't tell him. I said, fine. I said, what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you a copy of this. It's like a little flat pancake. In fact, I'll give you two. One for you and one if you want, you can give to your son. Okay. I go back a few days later. I knock on the door. The son answers the door. He looks at me and, and the father says, oh, yeah, come on in. He says, this is the man I was telling you about the other day. And I look at the son and I said, can I ask you one question? He, yeah, what is it? Is there some reason why you never asked your dad about his service during the war? And his whole demeanor, oh, no, no. If he wanted me to know, he would have told me. And I don't want to pry. And that's personal. And I turned to the veteran. I said, Mr. Yasersky, now that you know why your son never asked you about your service, would you be willing to tell him now what you told me the other day? Yeah, no problem. He wants to listen for it. And I, I said, sir, can I record? Yeah, go right ahead. And the son, he's 60 years old. He's transfixed. He's like a teenager. My God, Dad, you did that? You never told me. Oh, gee, my God. And I thought, better late than never. You know, wouldn't it be nice maybe if they'd had this conversation 20 or 30 years prior? So, Bob, what advice do you have for people who still have family members that they don't have to necessarily have fought in that war for approaching them to to share their stories? I, I think uh, civilians need to realize that war changes a person forever. The war is over, but the warrior is never over with his war. And to be aware of the fact that it's a very personal experience, each and every person, and everyone reacts to it in a different way. And let them let them know you're willing to listen, as opposed to asking questions, just say, Dad or Uncle, I know you with, I literally, I, I know you literally went to hell and back. I'm not going to pressure your personal information, but anytime you want to share it with me, I'm more than happy and honored to have you do that. I've got a friend of mine, he's a nice guy, but whenever he meets a World War II veteran, he'll say to him, how many Japs did you kill? How many Germans? And I tell him, I, I want to slap him in the face. I, you're, you're an idiot. That's such an insult. But a lot of people think that way. So I think to let the veteran know you realize, you don't understand, it's what they want to tell you, not what you want to hear or what you want them to tell you. Leave it entirely up to them. So just that, forbearance. I'd like to thank my guest, Bob Abbott, for sharing all the work he's done to collect stories of World War II veterans. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.